Last week, we finished the text portion of our study of First uh, and Second Kings. And in doing that, we really come to a cornerstone in the history of uh, the nation that God is raising up to bring forth his son, the Messiah, into the world. And from here, we will, as you know, jump into the book of Luke and spend some time in the New Testament. And so next week, uh, we'll kind of bridge the gap between where we are in the history of uh, Israel and what takes place now between now and the coming of Christ. And so we'll bring, come up to speed so that when we come into Luke, we kind of understand what happens in between. And the reason why uh, we do that, bridge the gap like that, is just so that we have a framework and we understand the succession of what takes place uh, throughout God's plan. And what that does is it makes the Bible a whole lot smaller. Uh, it helps us to understand and have a framework for what takes place where, and, and I think you'll find it helpful. But tonight what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at or zero in on a single facet of our study throughout Kings, and really the part that is the most applicable to us in our daily Christian lives and experience. From time to time, uh, we all hear about someone that goes through somewhat of what we would call a midlife crisis. And what that really is, is a realization that a person has that they only get one life and that they're about halfway through it and it's not really working out the way that they would like it to. And, and when you put those two things together, the realization that I only get one shot and it's really not happening the way I'd like, it causes a crisis for some people. They compare their dreams, the dreams of their youth, with the reality of the present. And then they project it into the future and they realize, oh my goodness, I'm wasting my life. Now for the person that doesn't know the Lord Jesus, that can be a great thing because it could cause them to come to the place where they realize that they need a savior, that they don't know how to live the life or it's not working out according to plan and hopefully they turn their lives to the Lord and they're changed. But for a Christian who goes through that, it's a gift. Because if God gives you the insight to see what your life is versus what it could be or what it should be, oftentimes the reason why he does that is because he's willing to make changes in your life so that your life doesn't end up being awash. Now here's the truth. Our lives as God's people are in his hand. He has a plan for us and a will. And the Bible says that it's good, that he knows the plans that he has for us to give us a future and a hope or to bring us to an expected end. Jesus said it like this. He said, herein is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and that your fruit should remain. And so God's will for each one of us is that we lead abundant and fruitful lives. That's what he wants. That's the truth. But having said that, it's also true that it's possible that we fail to see the good that he wills for us to be materialized in our experience. And the reason for that is because perhaps a lack of submission or stubbornness on our part or a failure to follow the leading that he has. And so the goal of the Christian, or at least one of the goals of the Christian life, is to the best of our ability to walk in submission and in obedience to him that his will would be done in our lives absolutely so that not one of us comes to a point where we say, I've wasted my life and the opportunity that God has given to me. 
Now, what does that have to do with tonight's Bible study? The Bible tells us that you and I, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, that we've been called a chosen generation and a royal priesthood. It says that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It calls us a chosen generation and a royal priesthood. He puts the two words together that throughout the whole Old Testament could never be put together. The words royal and priesthood. Royal signifies royalty or kingship. And priesthood signifies priesthood. And those are two very distinct things that only in Christ can they be linked and put together. In the Old Testament, that was an oxymoron. You could not be both a king and a priest. To be a king, you had to be from the tribe of Judah. And to be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. And it was absolutely illegal for one person to be both. But the Bible says that in Christ, you and I have been made into kings and priests. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. That is, in the kingdom of God, or in God's viewpoint, we are royalty. He has made us kings because of Christ, not because of anything that's in us. Now, I don't know exactly what that means in the context of eternity and how that all plays out. But having just finished a study of the kings of Israel in the Old Testament, I do see some similarities between the lives of the kings that we studied and the lives that we live as Christians. Now, both for them, the kings of ancient Israel, and for us, they were given and we are given a calling and a privilege. They had a divine calling from God to be in the place that they were, and it was a privileged call. They were called kings, called to lead. That's true for you and me as well. We've been given a calling and a privilege to be priests and kings unto our God. They also had a series of real-life circumstances that they had to navigate their way through. There were times and politics and miscellaneous issues that surrounded the reigns of these kings. That's true for us as well. Each of us has our individual lives and we carry this calling and this privilege that we have through the circumstances that God has laid out before us, navigating our way through, hopefully being led by the Spirit of God. And then they were also given a stewardship. That is that they had to make choices that would bear upon their success or failure in the privilege and call that God gave to them. And that's also true for you and I. We have a stewardship, and we've been given a name as kings and priests. We've been given circumstances to navigate through, but we're also called to make decisions that are going to affect our success or our failure in our future as we walk as Christians through this world. And so we, as Christians in the New Testament day, are very similar to the kings that we've studied in the Old Testament day. Now, we saw 41 kings and one queen as we went through all of those verses throughout First and Second Kings. And as we saw them, we saw that some of them were good and some of them were evil. But it might surprise you to discover that out of the 41, there was only 10 of which it said that they did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. There was only 10 out of 41 kings that God looked at with approval and said, these are the ones that have honored me with what they've done. Now, amongst those 10, there were varying degrees of 
pleasing to the Lord versus not so much pleasing to the Lord. They were right in his sight, but some did better than others. And so tonight, what we're going to do in our study is we're going to highlight the good kings and we're going to see where they were strong, but more importantly, where it was that they stumbled and where they went uh, wrong, so to speak, with the intent, looking at these things, that we for our own lives would be able to, first of all, take warning and see where the pitfalls are in this life. And then also that we might make the most of our one chance uh, at this life that each one of us has. And so our study begins with that first great good king of Israel, King David, who is uh, really the, 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 the highlight of all the kings that God called. David was called the shepherd and the sweet psalmist of Israel. And David, because of his love for God, became the gold standard by which all the other kings were measured. That when a king did right, his righteousness was measured against David's righteousness. He did what was right, but not like David. Or he did what was right, just like David did. David became the measuring rule for what a king was supposed to be. Now, David's strength and the reason why he was that gold standard was singularly his love for God. That's what David brought to the table. His allegiance and his heart were God's. That doesn't mean he was perfect. We remember he made a lot of mistakes. But his heart was God's. His needs were turned to God. His desires were filtered through the will of God. His blessings were relished and enjoyed because of God. His failures were absorbed by God and in God. His ambitions were the things that would bring God glory. And all of those things were true, not in David's behavior, but in David's heart. Meaning that God saw that in David, there was a sincere desire to put him first in all things because David loved God. And that was the reason why David pleased God so much. But David had a weakness as well. And that weakness turned into a fall in David's life. And it's a weakness that affects us in the days that we live in as well. And David's weakness, his great weakness, was his love for women, and specifically uh, illicit love for women, or an uncontrolled sexual appetite. It was commanded in the book of Deuteronomy that kings, when they came into a, a throne, that they were not to multiply wives. That was a specific thing that God commanded through Moses. And King David did. He ignored God even from the very beginning on that. And he took advantage of his privilege and he took many wives to himself. And because David plowed through the roadblock that God placed before him in his word, it became a vice in David's life. And as happens with any sin, it became uncontrollable at a point when he wanted a woman that he couldn't have. You remember her name, Bathsheba. She was already married. But David wanted her, and he knew that he could usurp control of her life with his authority as king, and he did it, and he sinned greatly. He took her in an adulterous way, and then he had her husband murdered so that he could seek to cover up his sin. And what it cost him is that 20 of his 40 years as a king were ruined and blanked because of what he did, and it wreaked havoc within his family. Now, there are many kings in the New Testament context today that have been blanked and shipwrecked by an uncontrolled sex drive. And we recognize it doesn't take a genius as we look at our world that we live in today to realize that this is a major problem. 
We live in a very sexually charged society that has very few boundaries. And we also see the wreckage and the ruin that that has cost us as a world. Now, as we look at the wreckage of that from where we sit tonight and we see the damage that it's done in the world, we ask the question, why? Why does something like that cause so much harm? Why is that boundary so important for us to keep? And why does it cause such a problem? The Bible teaches us that marriage was created by God. And in God's intent for marriage, he ordained that it would be one man and one woman for life. He said in Genesis chapter 2, 24, he said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And it says that the man and his wife were naked and they were unashamed before God. That was God's recipe and God's design for marriage And that's where God created the sexual expression to be experienced within the boundaries and the confines of that marriage. Now, in the wisdom of God, God gave to human beings a very powerful drive. And every one of us here understands that that's a very powerful drive. And God coupled that with a singular outlet for that drive to be experienced. And that was within marriage. And that can be confusing to us. Because God did something that puzzles us. I mean, think about it for one moment. We have countless drives. We have a drive for water or a drive for food, hunger. We have constant needs, things that we need done. And almost every drive that we have, there's almost a thousand ways that we can satisfy those drives. If I want a drink of water right now, I could think of at least a hundred ways I could get a drink of water. If I want food, I could go to Denny's or I could go to my refrigerator. Or I could go grab a mint from the basket in the back. There's hundreds of ways that I could satisfy that appetite that I have. If I need my clothes washed, I could ask my wife or I could do it myself. I could go to a laundromat or I could hire someone to wash my clothes. There's a thousand ways that I can meet every need that I have as a human being. But God gave me a very powerful drive, and he said there's one way, just one, that that drive is to be satisfied. It's to be through your wife or through your husband, through your spouse. And that's the only way that I've prescribed. Now, either God didn't know what he was doing when he made it that way, or God knew exactly what he was doing when he made it that way. And you say, well, what's the answer? Why such a powerful drive to be experienced and expressed in such a narrow and confined way? What's the reason? Now, I can't claim to understand all the dynamics of it, but I do believe it has something to do with God's relentless quest to teach us what true, selfless, unconditional love is. I don't know how it works, but I know that true love is the most powerful substance that exists in all of the universe. And the reason I know that is because the Bible says that God is love. And God is powerful. And love is a very powerful thing. And God wants us to understand and learn what that love is. Not the cheap and shallow counterfeit love that the world tries to sell us. But the true love that God is and the essence of it. And the bottom line is that if a couple is committed to each other, that that drive that God has given can be an ingredient in God teaching and imparting that love, teaching it through the expression of marriage, that we would know what it means to selflessly and unconditionally love another person. And he uses the dynamics of that drive in marriage to do just that. 
Well, the consequences for David walking outside of it is that he ruined his family, number one. And then number two, he never experienced the kind of love that God imparts and intends to impart through marriage. And that's a great loss. See, many people don't want to work through the struggles and issues that it takes to come to that place. And so they settle for a counterfeit love, an experience that mimics what the true love is supposed to bring forth. But the counterfeit can never bring forth the expression of what it's supposed to be. And so David's life warns us of the dangers of having an uncontrolled sexual appetite. The second king of Israel uh, that we learn from is King Solomon. The reign of Solomon followed David. He was David's son. And Solomon really reaped the glory that David had sowed. And Solomon, as we know, he was known for his great wisdom and his great wealth. He built the temple that became the epicenter of the worship of Jehovah within Jerusalem, a massive and ornate place that was the glory of the kingdom. His strength was that he sought God early in his life, and he took his calling seriously. Whatever he did, Solomon did it with all of his heart, and it caused prosperity to come. It caused God to be with him. But Solomon's weakness is that he had an appetite for opulence. And what that led to in Solomon's life was great covetousness. Now, one of the Ten Commandments that God gave to his people was, thou shalt not covet. Now, oftentimes, we seek to translate that word into English, and we equate covetousness with jealousy. That is, you should not be jealous of what someone else has, their wife or their lands or their material goods, whatever it is. But covetousness isn't jealousy exactly. It can be kind of felt that way. But really what covetousness deals with is deeper than just jealousy. Covetousness addresses the soul vacuum that every one of us has. It's that appetite that we have within us to be satisfied by something. And we seek to fill our lives with various things to try to satisfy that hunger that's undefinable that exists deep within our soul. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, the Apostle Paul links covetousness with idolatry. He says that we should flee covetousness, which is idolatry. And that is a worship or an affection for things. Now, the issue with Solomon and for anyone that struggles in this area of covetousness is that no matter what you have, it's never quite enough. And that was Solomon's problem. He had gold, but it wasn't enough. He had to use that gold to get more gold, and there was never a satisfaction. He always wanted more. He had land, but he wanted more land. It wasn't enough for him to just have some. He had to have more. He had houses and ships and trade and animals and wives, 700 wives and 300 concubines. But it was never enough. No matter what he had, he had this insatiable thirst for more. He had to have more. It's funny, uh, we were watching the Super Bowl just this past Weekend and uh, during the pregame, um, you know, commentary and interviews that they were doing, they were talking about Russell Wilson, the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks, and he had already won a Super Bowl in his second year as a professional uh, NFL player last year, and and he was saying that when he stood on the platform a year ago and held the Lombardi Trophy in his hand, he said the first thought that he had when he touched the trophy was I can't wait until I have this again next year. That before he even had time to enjoy the glory of what he was experiencing in that moment of celebration, he was already looking forward to the next one. 
Now, we went on to say that he had a secret goal of breaking the record for being the quarterback that won the most Lombardi trophies, that that's what was driving that. But isn't it an interesting thing? Then no matter what we accomplish, what we attain in this world, it's never quite enough. We get to where our goal line was, and the first thing we do is we set a new goal. Before oftentimes we even give thanks that we've attained the thing that we were previously seeking. The soul of man was designed by God, and it was designed to be satisfied. But it was made in such a way that it can only be satisfied by something that is infinite in its ability to give. That's why no matter what we put inside, we always want more. Because no matter how big we put something in, our soul just stretches that much more. And so we were made to need something that's infinite. And there's only one thing in the whole universe that's infinite, and that's God. And so for us to seek to be satisfied by anything else other than God is to, be, is to create a vacuum of covetousness. Now the consequence of this covetousness in Solomon's life is that he developed a hatred for life. His appetites drove him to greater labor. That labor drove him to greater attainments. And that attainment drove him to greater labor. And it frustrated him and it burned him out. And it brought him to a place where he said, I hate life. Because he couldn't be satisfied by the things that he was achieving and attaining and enjoying. Also, his many appetites turned him away from God later in life. Rather than driving him back to the one that could satisfy him, they drove him away from God. And the net result of Solomon's life is that his legacy became the opposite of his monarchy. He became nothing. A king that was handed everything became nothing. And so Solomon teaches us the danger of seeking to satisfy our lives with anything other than God. Now, our God is a blessing God. And he gives us good things. But the moment that we rejoice in the gift above the giver, we become less while our hunger becomes more. And Solomon issues to us a warning uh, to do that. The third king um, is in Second Chronicles chapter 14, and it's King Asa who was the great-grandson of Solomon. And after Solomon, there was a few generations of wicked kings in the south. But then Asa comes on the scene And we're told that he set his heart early in life to seek the Lord, that he cast down the idols, that he propped up the word of God and the commandment, and he went after the Lord in his heart. And his strength is what that he did that early in his reign. He put his full weight and his trust in God completely. And he had a great first half. For 10 years, there was no war at all. There was a peace upon Israel that they hadn't experienced since the days of Solomon. And when an invading army of Ethiopians of a million men came into their land to try to overthrow them, it says that Asa, not knowing what else to do, he couldn't man an army that would resist a million soldiers. He sought the Lord and he put his full trust in God that God would take care of it. And God did. We don't even know how, but it says that God strengthened Asa and God put to flight that one million man army of the Ethiopians and the Lubims. And he experienced a great victory because he was relying in the Lord. But his weakness was that later in life, once he was fully established and had resources, he turned and trusted in those resources and he stopped relying on God. It happened later on in his reign that a rival king threatened him 
And rather than turning to the Lord as he did earlier in his life, he got some money and he hired the Syrian army, an enemy kingdom, to come and help him fight the battle. And the result of that was that he was rebuked by a prophet, Hanani. In Second Chronicles 16, verse 7, it says that at that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, the king of Judah, and said to him, because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord, circle that word, that's the second time he used it, relied. Therefore, the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly, therefore from now on you will have wars. He says, when you were young, you relied upon the Lord, but now in your old age you've chosen to rely upon your own resources instead of the Lord. And the result of that is from now on you will have wars and there won't be peace in your kingdom. A few years later, we're told, 2 Chronicles, same chapter, 16, but then verse 12, it says this. It says that in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet and his malady was severe. Yet in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. So, and so it connects what happens next with the fact that he didn't trust in the Lord. It says, so Asa rested with his fathers. He died in the 41st year of his reign. And the idea is that this became a way of life for Asa in his later years. He stopped relying upon the Lord and he leaned upon his own resources instead. You and I were made to be in a relationship with God. That's what he created us for. And that relationship is not a casual relationship. It's not a religious or a business relationship. It's not a a liturgical relationship. It's intimate. God wants to be close to us. He wants us to be personal with him. He wants there to be a communion where the two literally become one, where Christ lives inside of our heart. And we're so close with the Lord that he's inside of us, closer than our skin, not an intimate friend externally, but a personal savior who lives inside of us. That's what God created us for. And that's what he wants. He wants to be the Lord of our life. And so he wants us to rely upon him completely, trusting in him. That's what we were made for. Isn't it amazing how limited we are? We had a prayer time before the service tonight in Pastor Bobby's office. And as we were praying, I was just thinking about God seated upon his throne. And the Bible says that he's far above all principalities and powers. That he holds all things together by the word of his power and within his hand, that there's nothing that escapes his eye. He's literally in control of every circumstance in every life that is happening on this planet simultaneously. And he knows all of what happened, past, present, and future all at once. That's our God. And at the same time, here we are sitting on earth and we can't even remember yesterday. We don't know where we are right now and we have no clue where we're going tomorrow. And there's this incredible chasm that exists between who he is and who we are. And he says, just rely upon me. I want to be the Lord of your life. I want to lead every step. I know the plans that I have for you. And if you would just trust in me, you can cast your cares upon me. But what do we do? Well, when we're young, we really have no other choice. 
And so if we know the Lord in our youth, we say, well, God, of course, you've got to get me out of this. Or you've got to heal me. Or God, you've got to help me make rent or pay the bills. What else, what other choice do I have? And so we rely on him and we see God come through. Like David said, I've been young and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their seed begging for bread. But what happens is that we get old and we walk with God for a while and he gives us some resources. And We come to a point in our life where now we've got some options. Well, a situation comes up and I can choose. I can either trust in God in this and let him get me through it. Or I could just use the resources that he gave me and I can try to do it myself. And that's a dangerous temptation. And it's a place where every single one of us are vulnerable. To where we get to a point in our lives where we become independent of God and we begin to try to work things through with our own wisdom and our own strategy. And it's a dangerous place to be. And it's where Asa fell. It's where a good king fell. Now the consequences for Asa, God said, because you did this without trust in me, now, God said, you're always going to have to do this by yourself. That's what he said. Because you trusted in the king of Syria and didn't lean upon me, now you will always have wars. This is going to be a constant thing in your life. Now you're always going to have to rely upon your own resources. And then... When Asa came upon a problem that exceeded his resources, he died because he wasn't able to heal himself. Do you realize how limited we are? There's so much that we cannot do. And it offends God when we take things into our own hands and we don't include him in every area of our life. And so Asa teaches us the danger of self-reliance. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, most of us know it by heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. The fourth king uh, is King Jehoshaphat and his story is given to us in 2 Chronicles chapter 17. And he was the son of Asa and he started off right from the beginning. The key verse that tells us his position is chapter 17, verse 6. It says that his heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. That that's what drove him, is that he wanted to please God and he wanted to succeed. He wanted to have a successful life. It tells us that he appointed teachers and priests to go through the land teaching the law, the Torah, the commands of God. He's the only king out of all of them that did that. Was concerned that the people learned the word of God and he was a king who loved righteousness. But the weakness of Jehoshaphat and where he turned aside is that though he loved righteousness, he didn't hate the deeds of evil men. And twice in his life, he made alliances with the ungodly King Ahab, and it became his downfall. His son was given to Ahab's daughter in marriage, and he united righteousness and wickedness, the righteous tribe of Judah with the wickedness that was going on in the north. You remember what Ahab did and the wickedness that he brought into the nation. And rather than reproving that wickedness and using his platform as an influence to bring Ahab to repentance, he gave approval to Ahab by giving his son to his daughter in marriage. And then later on, he allied with Ahab to fight against the Syrians. And he was rebuked for it in Second Chronicles chapter 19, verse 2. The son of Hanani, Jehu the prophet, came to him and said, Should you help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon you from before the Lord. Here's what Jehoshaphat did. Is that he 
purchased unity at the expense of righteousness. Or he blurred the lines between the righteous and the wicked. And the consequence of that is that rather than influencing righteousness in a wicked place, he brought wickedness into a righteous place. He became a tool for them to advance their evil cause and then he corrupted succeeding generations because of it. When a Christian in New Testament times loses their sense of separation and being sanctified unto the Lord and they begin to accept the behavior of ungodly people and and really seeing no distinction between what we are and what the world is, and what a follower of Christ is versus a follower of uh, the world, what we're doing by accepting that is we're sending the message that acceptance is not conditioned on behavior. That everyone just gets a pass. And, And everyone is just accepted, and it doesn't matter what you do or what your preferences are or the way that you live or your lifestyle choices. None of that matters. You should never feel like you're not accepted. You should, you should just feel like you're accepted. We'll worry about that part now and we'll worry about the lifestyle secondarily or some other way and some other time. And what that produces within a society or a culture is, is it eliminates anyone's um, ability or authority to ever look at something and say, that is wrong. Or to say, this is right and that is wrong. Because now we've taken that out and everything just gets a pass. And so you end up in a society where now you have transgender bathrooms. Because if I feel like I'm a female, even if you know what I am because you're in the same room as me, but if I feel like a female and if I want to be a female, then who are you to tell me what I am or what I want to be or what I should be or what I was supposed to be that I wasn't for some reason? You see what happens? Where does it stop? See, when you begin to move the lines between what is right and what is wrong, and we begin to say, well, some things are okay, or we have the same name, or we live in the same neighborhood, and so, well, we're all just kind of accepted. Now you've broken down a, a very important wall, and it's very difficult now to bring that back. And it's a dangerous thing when it comes into a society. Jesus said that there are two roads. He said there's a narrow way that leads to life, and few there are that find it. And he said that there's a broad path that leads to destruction, and many there are that go in there at. He said, there is light and there is darkness. He said, I am the light of the world and I'm the light that brings life to men. And any man that finds my light will leave darkness and come into my light. And then he made a distinction. He said, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And when we begin to accept the person of the wicked because everything just gets accepted, then we blur those lines And what we might be trying to do in comforting someone, we're actually damning someone because they'll never find the way to truth. Shame is a gift from God. And there's not one person in this room right now that is saved short of feeling shame for your sin at some point. Because that's part of the conviction that brings us to Christ. That I'm a sinner and I'm separated from God. And unless something is done to remove that sin and pay the price for it, then I have no righteous standing before God. I am alienated from his life. And so Jehoshaphat teaches us that there is a God-given wall that separates the narrow road from the broad road, and that wall is there for a reason, and that we're not to do it. We're to maintain our sense of separation. 
The fifth king, good king, is King Joash. And the story is given to us in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. And after the confusion that Jehoshaphat brought into the nation by mixing the tribes, the wicked and the evil, an intermarriage between Judah and Israel, after a few generations, Israel ended up with its only queen reigning, Queen Athaliah, who was a byproduct of all that mixing between Jehoshaphat and Ahab. And Athaliah, in a lust for power and a desire to preserve her influence, she took and she killed as many descendants of King David as she could find. She killed all of the royal seed. And there was only one infant child that was rescued by a priest named Jehoiada and his wife. And he was hidden away for six years. And for all that time, all of Israel thought that the seed of David has been destroyed, eliminated, and that they were destined to now just sit under Athaliah and her wicked, wicked ways. When Joash was seven years old, he was brought out by Jehoiada and he was presented to the nation as their king. And they killed Athaliah and they ordained or uh, crowned Joash as the king when he was seven years old. And it was a great time of rejoicing. And it says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And it tells us that he sought God all the days of Jehoiada, the priest that saved him. But then it tells us that once Jehoiada died, a little bit later on, that Joash was then persuaded by the younger generation to ease some of the righteous restrictions that had been put up while Jehoiada was still living. And that when Joash was rebuked for taking down those restrictions by the prophet Zechariah, who was the son of Jehoiada the priest, it says that Joash had him killed. And so what Joash represents for you and I is the Christian who lives their Christian life on someone else's conviction. See, as long as he had the righteous influence of Jehoiada, he did fine. But once Jehoiada was removed and taken off the scene, then he was influenced by the younger generation that said, hey, come on, man, we don't need to be so strict. Lighten up. We could have a few idols, a few shrines, a few high places. It's no big deal. And he immediately shifted from the convictions that were placed there by Jehoiada and he gave in to the demands of the youth. He shifted. His roots were planted in the opinions of other, others and never rooted in truth itself. And there are people that form their opinions about God around whoever is the most persuasive in their life. And it's so important that you and I have our own convictions That we don't ride on someone else's salvation or someone else's message or someone else's convictions in our relationship with God. But that we allow God the Holy Spirit to take his own residence within our lives. And that based upon the word of God and the conviction of the spirit of God, we come into our own personal relationship with him. The Joashes that we see in our world today and in our churches today are not necessarily bad people. But oftentimes they're Christians who know the Lord, but they never read the Bible for themselves and they never pray for themselves. They always ask themselves, well, what would the pastor say? Or what would my Christian mentor say or do in this situation? When they need something, they ask others to pray for them, but they don't pray for themselves. Well, the consequence of not being rooted and having your own convictions is that you're then ultimately swayed once those influences disappear from your life. That's what happened to Joash. And he did wicked things later on that no one ever thought that he would do. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 says that we ought to take the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Or I like what the New King James says. It says drift away. 
The Word of God is an anchor for our soul. And when our lives are firmly attached to the anchor of God's Word, we can't be swayed by the opinions of others, no matter how persuasive they are. Because we've already been fully persuaded by what God says in His Word. That's absolute truth, and we stand upon that authority. And so Joash teaches us the danger of not having our own relationship with God, but leaning too heavily on someone else's opinions or ways. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Peter exhorts and he says, Be diligent to make your calling and election sure. And it's so important for each one of us that we be people that have our own uh, relationship with the Lord and not someone else's. Colossians, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Ask yourself, am I really in the Lord? Do I know how to seek God for myself? Do I read the Bible and allow his spirit to place convictions within my heart? Or do I simply ride on someone else's faith? Or I go to a good church, so it's all good for me. Where are you really at? Well, we move on to Amaziah, the sixth King, it's in Second Chronicles chapter 25 that we have his story. And we're told that he did what was right and that he was good. But if you wanted to put a banner over the life of Amaziah, you could just write, right in the margin, somewhere near his name, pin the tail on the will of God. Because that's exactly the way that he lived his life. He lived by the motto, ready, fire, aim. Always putting the cart before the horse. Doing things for the sake of doing without seeking direction from God for them. And three times in his short testimony about himself, he got himself involved in things he had no business being involved with without ever asking what God's will in it was. And the result is that he was greatly humiliated before his enemies. That his city and his defenses were dismantled and it cost the lives of a number of his men. And Amaziah represents the Christian who lives by impulse and not by prayer. Jesus, when he taught us to pray, said that a part of our daily prayer as we interact with the Lord is that we would ask, Thy will be done. Is that every day, every moment of our life, we're putting ourselves before him and saying, God, what do you want me to do today? How do you want me to make decisions Lord, what decisions do you want me to make? What's the best thing to do in this situation or that one? In the long term of our life, Lord, the plans that are for the future and the things that are going to affect where I am in 10, 20, or 30 years from now, Lord, let your will be done, not my own. We're called to pray those things. The Apostle Paul would testify about himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and he would say that I run like one who's running to win. I have a goal, and there's somewhere that I'm going, and I fight but not as one who just beats the air. And I love that picture because it's kind of like, you know, you you can imagine someone going into a a boxing ring or a UFC octagon, and they blindfold themselves, and they just start swinging and flailing their hands and feet. Paul says, that's not the way I live my Christian life. But there are many Christians who do live just that way. They never ask God what he wants. They just feel like, I've got to be doing for the sake of doing. Action, but without prayer, and without effect. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, it's a great verse. You've probably seen it on a plaque in someone's house. It says this, it says, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
It's such a great verse, isn't it? Because it doesn't say those that serve upon the Lord or those that strive in the name of the Lord. It says they that wait upon the Lord. And then it gives the picture of an eagle. You ever notice that eagles don't flap their wings very much when they fly? If you ever see an eagle in mid-flight, oftentimes its body is completely motionless. And yet it's being carried by a great force. When an eagle wants to lift into flight, all it does is stand upon the edge of its nest and wait. And when the draft, the up breeze, comes up from the side of wherever he's placed his nest and he feels the weight of that wind, he just simply spreads out his wings and then drops into flight. And he allows the currents of the wind to carry him where he's going and he navigates his way as he just rides the currents of those winds. And that's the picture that God gives you and me of how we're to live our lives. We're not to flap like a sparrow and just aimlessly go through our days, but we're to wait upon him continually. And we're to lift up our sails, wait for God to fill it, and then allow him to move our ship to where it's supposed to be and what it is that we're supposed to do. And that's the um, way we're called to do. When you have a Christian like Amaziah, almost always they have a weak relationship with the Lord. Inside, they believe. And they believe in his love, but they have a hard time receiving it for themselves. He loves me in a generic way or in a corporate sense, but he doesn't really know me. And I'm not worth his time. And so for me to pray and ask God to lead my steps, is that's kind of an exercise in futility. He's way too busy and way too big to care about what I'm doing today or what's important to me or leading my life. And so what happens is they just try things. Oh God, what do you want me to do? Well, you must want me to do this. I saw David build ships. I saw Solomon build a navy. And so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build shift and build a navy. That must be your will. Maybe not. God has a will for you. And if you'll take the time to seek him, he's more than willing and he's ready and waiting to reveal to you what it is that he has for you, what he wants you to do. And so we're encouraged to wait upon the Lord. Amaziah teaches us the danger of action for the sake of action. The seventh king is King Uzziah. And his story is in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. It's one of the longest reigns. He reigned for 52 years and he started when he was 16 years old. We're told that he sat under Zechariah the prophet and he was firmly established in the ways of God and that he was industrious in his personality and because of that, he prospered. He was a great, successful king and he had a wonderful influence upon the nation. But his weakness is that later on in life, his success led him to an ungodly pride. He thought too highly of himself and he forgot that he was God's king and not God. Now, God's way for anyone to approach him in those days was that they would come through the mediation of a priest. I said earlier tonight that a king was never allowed to enter into the quarters of a priest's ministry. The priests were the ones that offered incense and offerings. And Uzziah got so lifted up in pride later in his life that he thought, I'm so spiritually mature that I don't need a priest to stand between me and God. I can go directly to God myself and I don't need to do things God's way. And so he went into the temple to burn incense and the priest said, hey, Uzziah, you can't do that. That's not your ministry. And Uzziah said, you shut up. I'm the king. I'll do whatever I want. And so he budged his way through and as he approached the altar of incense, he was immediately smitten with leprosy. It started in his forehead. And when they saw it, they said, hey, look, and he saw it himself and he panicked. And it says that the 80 priests that were there grabbed him and they thrust him out of the temple. 
And that ended his kingship. He was no longer allowed to be king in that moment. He was lifted up in pride. That pride moved him to get involved in something he had no business being involved in. And it cost him his influence and his legacy in the ministry that that he had. There is no faster way to be set aside in the influence for the things of God or for the bearing of fruit for an effective life than to get lifted up in pride. We've talked about that at great um, length throughout our study. But pride, stubbornness, independence, self-love, all of those things offend God and they're to be avoided. And so Uzziah teaches us the danger of being lifted up in pride through the success and the blessing that God gives. He also teaches us the danger of spiritual independence. And that is thinking that we can do the Christian thing by ourselves. Sometimes that's a real temptation, isn't it? We think, well, I don't need anyone else in this Christian thing. I've got the word of God and I've got the spirit of God. And so I can just go live in the woods with my Bible and fellowship with Jesus and wait for him to come back with my guns and gold and grain, you know, and all the rest. It's a very dangerous place to be. We need each other. I know that I need, I have a few, and it's a few, but a few close friends that I need in the Lord. I spend so much time in the Bible, it would blow your mind. I have to. I get to. Let me put it that way. I love the fact that I get to study the word of God as much as I get to. And the fruit of that is that oftentimes I can counsel myself through a lot of situations because I just do what I would do with someone else. I begin to look at it objectively and then hold it against the word of God and come to practical solutions for the the things that I'm going through in my own life. But God in his wisdom every now and again will throw me a curveball. He actually does it more often than I'd like. What he does, he puts me in a circumstance that I can't figure out. It's too big for me. It's too great for me. What do you do then? Listen, what he does for me is that I'll call up one of my friends, close friends, that I can just let everything, let my hair down, so to speak, with them. And I begin to talk with them about the things that are going on. And it's amazing how God will use them. And I hope you have that in your life. I hope that your Christian experience, that you have people around you, a couple, just maybe even one that you can really bear your soul to. They don't even have to be as mature as you in the Lord because God will use them to help you get through the things that you're going through. Uzziah didn't have that. He was spiritually independent. He thought he could do it all. God didn't design anyone to be able to do it all. We need the body of Christ. The eighth king is King Jotham and his story is given to us in 2 Chronicles 27. And Jotham is the only one of the 10 kings that were good of which there is no weakness whatsoever. There's not one spot where King Jotham failed. He was completely successful throughout his entire reign. He was the son of Uzziah, and it gives us the key to his success in chapter 27, verse 6. It says, So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. That's all it has to say about him. There's no failure. There's no weakness. There's no point wherein he went outside the boundaries that God had established. He prepared his ways before the Lord. And the reason why I love this so much is because of how incredibly simple it is. You would think that if you want to make it through this life without stumbling and falling, that you've got to have an encyclopedia of guidelines memorized so that you don't walk to the left or to the right. But yet the king that did the best, it says the least about him, and the way he did it was so incredibly simple. It just says that he prepared his way before the Lord. And the picture I get in my mind is that he's standing behind a great spotlight that's just shining out in front of him. 
And the spotlight is there and he can see where the boundary of light is on the left and he sees the boundary of light on the right and he just walks within that way that's been prepared before him. He just prepared his way. He didn't step outside the boundaries that God had established. He stayed within the parameters of God's word. He put God first in all that he did. He sought the counsel of the Lord and the result is that he never was shipwrecked. He was successful. And that's the same testimony that you and I can have. In this, he consciously included God in every area of his life with an awareness that obedience will always lead to a good outcome. The ninth king uh, of the good kings was King Hezekiah, and his stories in Second Chronicles chapter 29. And his life can be marked by three words. He was a man of great revival. The spirit of God moved powerfully in his days because of his heart for God, which led to great reform because the spirit of God was moving. Idols were cast down and high places were destroyed and things were set right. There was great reform in his day. And he was a man of great reliance. So great revival led to great reform because he was a man of great reliance. And one of the greatest acts of God's intervention in response to prayer happened in the life of Hezekiah. On par with the Red Sea, 185,000 men were killed by an angel in one night because of a simple two-minute prayer that Hezekiah prayed, God, it is nothing for you to help. You could help by many or by those that have no power. And he just prays to the Lord. And the Lord goes through with an angel and he destroys the entire army of the Assyrians. And it's an incredible deliverance and a victory. He was a man with many strengths, but he had one weakness. And Hezekiah's weakness was that when God's will went a different direction than Hezekiah's will, he didn't like it and he resisted it. He had just seen the greatest deliverance of God for his people since Moses. And God came to Hezekiah in those days and he said, Hezekiah, that's it. Your time is up. Get your house in order. It's time for you to come to heaven. And Hezekiah said, no, 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 no. I'm 39 years old. It's too soon. I'm just getting going. I'm just coming to the apex. This is the time... This is where we're in the prime of life. God, no, I I want more, Lord. No, no, no. And it says that he wept like a bird before the Lord. And so God granted him, in his request, 15 more years. And his mistake, Hezekiah's was, is that he wanted more of something than what God wanted him to have. God gave Hezekiah just enough for him to be iconic. And for his life to be epic. I mean, what a testimony to go out that way. He just saw the greatest victory. And then he goes home to be with the Lord. And God knew that to have one minute more is going to be a disaster for Hezekiah. And it was. The consequence was that when he he was given those 15 years, he was lifted up in pride. And his pride led him to pave the way for the king of Babylon to come in. And ultimately that paved the way for the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah. He also, during those 15 years, sired King Manasseh, the most wicked king that Judah would ever see, who did more to bring them down than any other king that lived before him. So what's the connect in our lives as Christians today? James chapter 1, verse 17 says that every good gift is from above. That God gives. He's a giving God. And he's a God of love. And love gives. And it delights God to give to us as his children, and he gives us good things. 
Psalm chapter 84, verse 11 says, No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Meaning that if there is something that is good for you to have, then it's God's good pleasure to give it to you. But it also means that if God doesn't give you something, it's because it's not good for you. And so God gives us exactly the amount of whatever we have that is good for us. He gives us exactly the amount of money that is good for us to have. Exactly the amount of time. Exactly the amount of energy. Exactly the amount of intelligence. Exactly the right amount of social skills. And it applies literally to every area of our lives. He gives us exactly enough for it to be good for us. And for him to give us one dollar more, or one minute more, or one bit of influence more than he's given to us, he knows that that's going to turn out to be a disaster for us. And so what Hezekiah teaches us is that whatever God wills for our lives, that is what is absolutely best for us. God is uncompromisingly good to us. He doesn't shortchange anyone. And he calls us to trust him with our plans and with the outcomes of our lives. And so Hezekiah stepped outside of that. The final king of the good kings that we learn from is King Josiah, whom we studied last week, his stories in Second Chronicles chapter 34. He was truly great. Had Josiah lived in a different time, and not just at the very tail end when Israel was about to, or, or Judah was about to go into judgment, his story probably would have been so much more glorious than it was. He was a man who was personally affected by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And that lit a fire in his life that would last throughout all of his days. Josiah did more to clean up Judah than any other king that came before him, and he did it with a passion. His strength was in his zeal that he had for God. He had a lot of energy and a lot of zeal. But his weakness, which is common to zealous people, is that he let the heat of his zeal cauterize his sensitivity to hear the voice of God. His zeal caused him to get out in front of God in things, and that caused him to get into trouble. It tells us that as God was dealing with the other nations, the surrounding nations, and he was moving things around, God, the grand chess piece mover, and as he was fixing nations to align them with his purposes, it says that the king of Egypt passed through the land of Egypt on his way to make war with the king of Assyria. And Josiah, in his zeal, saw the king of Egypt pass through, and he said, you're not passing through my territory, and he went out to confront him. And the king of Egypt said, hey, this is a God thing. You need to go home and mind your business. And Josiah pushed on forward through it anyways, and it cost him his life. He died because he meddled in something that he had no business meddling in, and he was interrupting the plans of God in the whole thing. And that's a common mistake with those that, that have a lot of zeal for God. With them, action is more important than obedience. It's what we would call a Martha mentality. Remember Mary and Martha, Luke chapter 10? Jesus was at their house. Their brother was Lazarus. And as they were there, it says that Jesus was teaching. And Mary, one of the sisters, was sitting at Jesus' feet, just hearing his word. And Martha, the zealot, she was busy serving, clanging pots and pans, making dishes, you know, all, all trying to entertain Jesus. And she got frustrated because Mary was just sitting. And so she comes to Jesus and she says, Lord, rebuke my sister Mary and tell her to come help me in the kitchen. And Jesus looked at her and he said, Martha, Martha, you are cumbered or troubled with many things, but there's one thing that is needful. 
And Mary has chosen that good part and it will not be taken from her. And there is an element of God's Holy Spirit that affects certain people in a certain personality and it causes us, and I'll include myself in it, to have a tendency to be extremely zealous for God. And that we feel like we always need to be doing, doing, doing for God. But oftentimes our weakness is that we can get out in front of God and find ourselves meddling in things that we have no business being in. Romans chapter 11 verse 36 says this. It says, for of him, through him, and for him are all things. See, to a zealot we think for him are all things. But the doing and the throughing is my part. Not so. All things are of him, meaning that it has to first be his will. He thought of it. Through him, meaning that he's the one that gives you the power, the wisdom, and the vision to do it. And then ultimately, it must be for him. God's will with God's power for God's glory. The opposite of that is my will with my effort, and we say for God's glory. But if it works then we take the glory oftentimes. Look what I did for the Lord. I thought of it, I had this great vision, and then I was able to raise the funds and get, the, get it together and do it. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. It's of him, then through him, and ultimately it's for him. And so Josiah teaches us that an unprotected strength is a weakness. And even in our zeal for God, which is good, we must wait upon his leading. And so 10 kings... 10 examples and 10 warnings and admonitions for us. And the thing that I appreciate most as we look at these things together is that I can relate to every single one of these tendencies that these guys had. And they help me to recognize as I see them where I'm vulnerable in my own life or out of balance. The greatest asset that you and I possess is our relationship with God. There's, there's nothing else that you could ever have or possess that you could even bring close to that in terms of value. That's the, that's the greatest thing that we have is our relationship with him. And second to that would be our investment in his kingdom. And that is what we do with our lives as we walk with him towards his goal for our lives. And what he's giving to us here in this study and through the lives of these kings is warnings and instructions so that we can protect that investment and protect that relationship. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, and he said this, and, and here is heart. He says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to your trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith, Grace be with thee. Amen. It's the last words of Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy. And he says, Oh, Timothy, keep what has been committed to your trust. Preserve it. Hold on to it. Protect it. Listen, church, to me tonight. In these days that we live in, in this hour of humanity right now, God has entrusted to every single one of us a relationship with himself, a goal, and a prize. And he's given to us a privilege and a call. He's given us a set of circumstances and a set of resources. And he's given us a stewardship and a responsibility. And he calls us to make wise choices that we never come to a point within our lives where we would say, God, 
I'm having a crisis here. Because I see where I'm going, or where I want to go, and I see where I am, and I'm so far off from who I want to be and what I want to be. What do I do now? And so God gives us warnings through his word and through his servants that we might keep what's been committed to our trusts and that we might live successful and fruitful lives bearing much fruit and bringing glory to his name. In Jesus' name. Father, we thank you so much tonight, Lord, for what you've set before us in these testimonies. And Lord, for every one of us tonight, there are areas where we look and we see, Lord, where we're weak and where we need your help. And so, Father, we ask that you would take the things that we've heard and that you'd wrestle out of our hand and out of our hearts those things that don't belong. That, Lord, we wouldn't find ourselves like a Solomon who's empty at the end or a Joash who goes home early. But, Lord, that we might win the race that's been set before us. And that we might hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So strengthen us and use the things that we've heard. And may we please you with our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.